Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Coffee, Cows, and Crops. Today, we'll be chatting with Dr. Mark Boyce, a professor of ecology at the University of Alberta. And we'll be talking about the work he's been doing on adaptive multi-paddock or AMP grazing. But before we get into all the fun stuff, Mark, would you like to introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about how you got started with the University of Alberta? I came to Edmonton in 1999, and so I've been here ever since, and I really like my job. In 2010, I chaired uh, the International Conference for Conservation Biology. And little did I know that one of my responsibilities in organizing this conference was to spend about $75,000 worth of, of carbon tax that they imposed on everybody who attended the meeting. And I didn't know what to do with $75,000 carbon tax revenue, just like obviously Justin Trudeau doesn't know how to spend carbon tax revenues in Canada. But I looked around and I looked at forests. Well, you know, in Alberta, we have two major types of forests. We've got the boreal forest in the north, and it's a fire-maintained ecosystem. So every 150 years or so, it goes up in smoke and puts it right back into the atmosphere. And then we've got the Rocky Mountain Forest, lodgepole pine, and that's also a fire-maintained ecosystem with even a shorter uh, fire return interval. And so it didn't make sense to try to use forests as a carbon sink. And so I started learning about grasslands, and grasslands are amazing places because they sequester two, three uh, metric tons of CO2 equivalents every year per hectare, and and they squirrel their way in the soil where it's very secure. So we ended up uh, teaming up with Nature Conservancy Canada and uh, Ducks Unlimited and uh, Alberta Fish and Game Association and the Alberta Conservation Association, and we came up with enough money to buy a ranch in southern Alberta. It's called the Wild Ridge Ranch. It's right next to the McIntyre Ranch, south of Lethbridge. Many people know that property, I think. And so we started monitoring the carbon, and it was amazingly successful. We managed the grazing in a, in a very careful way to ensure that we weren't overgrazing. The rebound was spectacular, you know, very lush growth of, of vegetation and lots of carbon being sequestered into the soil. And then a few years after that initial experience, the Alberta Agriculture and Agri-Foods Department advertised a, uh, a grants program called the Agricultural Greenhouse Gas Program. And the idea was to figure out ways to manage agricultural systems to minimize carbon emissions and, in our case, maximize uh, carbon sequestration and storage. And so we applied for those funds and and, uh, and got a five-year grant, about $3 million. And there are many parts of this proposal that I really don't understand very well. Some biochemistry work and some uh, lab work that this is, I like field work, I don't do the lab stuff, but 
but I had really good colleagues who did all that stuff. And, uh, and we just wrapped this project up about a, a year ago. And I would say that it was a fairly successful project. We've got a number of publications coming out of it. And, and what we did was to evaluate this AMP grazing. Now, people may know it as holistic grazing. It has a variety of names. In, in, uh, in England, they call it mob grazing. And the idea is that you graze a, a small pasture fairly intensively for a short period of time. I mean, we're talking three or four days. And then move the cattle on to the next paddock and graze that one, then move them on. But in, and we expect to see maybe 30 paddocks or so uh, on a ranch. And, and so you're, you're moving the, the cattle quite frequently, but really high density, and they hit it pretty hard when they're there, and they eat everything that's there. And then, but then there's a long rest period of 70 or 80 days when the vegetation grows without any disturbance. And it sequesters carbon like crazy. It also improves water infiltration. So with, with this system, we had increased water infiltration, the black soil profile was deeper under this grazing system. So we were storing lots of carbon. We looked at the microbes and what they were doing and were actually sequestering methane into the soil. More litter on average on the surface, which reduces water loss. And the, the balance was a very favorable one as it related to soil health carbon sequestration and storage, and beef production. So it, it's just a win-win. And I didn't expect it. In fact, I was a real skeptic about this whole AMP thing. A lot of ranchers were telling me that this is the best thing they've ever done when switching to AMP racing. But then, then I looked in the literature and I would seen kind of mixed reviews of it. But uh, we designed the study in a way that we could evaluate the effectiveness of this program over the entire uh, northern Great Plains of Canada. And so we had 64 ranches that we sampled from Alberta, across Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. And we had half of those ranches, so 32 of those ranches, were AMP grazing ranches, where they followed the protocol pretty much as they're supposed to. And then we chose a neighboring ranch uh, where they were kind of doing whatever. So it was sort of a sample of whatever else everybody was doing. And so we did a contract between these paired ranches. And that's how we were able to come to these conclusions about how effective it was in terms of, of uh, biodiversity, in terms of carbon sequestration, storage, in terms of water infiltration. And, and the water infiltration story is really an important one in the Northern Great Plains because if, if you have a, a drought, you need to make sure that there's good soil moisture and also you want to minimize the loss of that soil moisture. And again, AMP grazing just excels on that front. So um, we were pleasantly surprised by how, how well it, it really did work. And, and the, the ranchers who were doing AMP grazing were not surprised at all. They knew it worked. <laughs> but we're not. But now we've got the data to show how and why it works, and um, and and this is the largest study of its kind 
there have been a, lot, a number of studies trying to show that AMP grazing was effective, but the scale was always much smaller. The geographic area that they were covering was, was fairly restricted, and the results were highly mixed because it wasn't replicated, it didn't have controls. So our, I think our study design, which was reviewed by a statistician ahead of time, our study design was the key to the success of the project. And, and uh, yeah, I'm a believer. AMB grazing is great. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, that's good because we've been talking about AMP grazing at uh, PCBFA for a couple of years. So it's good to hear that. <laughs> so you alluded very briefly to uh, the practices that are kind of covered by AMP grazing. And I imagine that's part of why the previous studies were so mixed. Is it's such a adaptive system that it can be really difficult to replicate necessarily. So could you run me through kind of how this experiment was set up in terms of like how you decided what was AMP grazing and what wasn't and that sort of stuff? So we had a pretty rigorous um, protocol for what identified an AMP rank. And some ranchers were claiming that they were doing AMP, but they don't have been doing it for a couple of years. And we need to have done it for, you know, five or 10 years to be able to know that your soil is, has responded and, and also that you're really into the program. Um, there, there needs to be an intensive period, a short period of, of grazing. You need to have a, a large number of paddocks. I think we had a minimum of like 25 paddocks on the range. One of the key elements of AMP grazing is a long rest to grazing ratio, meaning the amount of time that, that, that the pasture was in rest is very long relative to the length of time that it was in grazing. And that's the key to the success of, of AMP grazing. Um, so uh, Edward Bork, who is a a, a range scientist at the University of Alberta was on our team, and he did a really careful uh, evaluation of what constituted uh, AMP grazing. But we had we had a list of criteria that we put together based upon uh, on our understanding of how it's supposed to work. And then uh, uh, Richard Teague and Steve Applebaum uh, and uh, Jessica Grinke reviewed each ranch and visited the ranch, spoke with the, with the, uh, uh, with the rancher, made sure that, that each of these 32 sites was truly an AMP ranch. We started with 130 and, and, and we winnowed it down by whether or not they rigorously met these criteria. And then at the end, we did a random selection as well to, to again, improve our sampling design. And, and then we chose a ranch nearby, uh, often adjacent, where they were doing whatever. But doing whatever is usually, in, in Canada, it's usually some kind of a restoration system. 70% of, of, of uh, grazers in Canada have some kind of a restoration system. And none of these matched AMP grazing. The, you know, our basically our random selection we never hit another AMP site adjacent, but um, but they're highly variable in how they actually manage uh, livestock. 
but but our design was such that we had AMP versus whatever else, and our contrast was between what, the people who are doing AMP grazing versus whatever else is out there. And uh, we had a, a very few ranchers who were truly doing continuous grazing. Um, we, you know, and it's really common that you'll only have maybe three or four pastures on a, a section of land, and, and so really large pastures. And one of the things that happens on these larger pastures is that the cattle are highly selective, and they'll they'll eat the good stuff. And there's as we get increasers, decreasers, and you can really see it. You know, there there are places where. There's quite a bit of forage there in the in the stuff that they don't really like all that much. Well, under AMP grazing, they graze the snot out of each of those pastures. They hit it hard. They don't leave anything. And and, and in fact, that's kind of the design is, is you want to graze it all and then move them up. And and by doing that, we didn't see the change. We don't we don't see the, the shifts in the the different species of plants. Associated with increasers versus decreasers, we didn't see that that the less preferred forage was spreading or increasing, um, but rather everything was being used, and, and that's part of the sort of the adaptive nature of this. You graze an area as long as as it can really handle it, and then you know after they've pretty well cleaned everything up, then you move them. And if it's a dry spell, uh, it may take longer. It, it, if there's a lot of forage, it, it, it may take longer. And so it, it just depends on the, 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 the uh, productivity, the amount of forage there, and the number of cattle that you've got. One of the things that's really difficult, one of the challenges, I think, of AMP grazing is, is being able to manipulate your herd size. You know, when conditions are good, you want more, more livestock out there, but you can't really crank up your herd in a hurry. And you don't really want to have to call your herd in a hurry either. So there is always this, this balancing, mostly associated with the amount of time that the cattle spend on paddock and, and before they're, they're being stopped. And that, that's the main way in which the adaptive business happens. But there is some adjustment in, in herd size. And some people move cattle onto into a different, uh, into different pasture. That makes sense. So I remember in college, we talked very briefly about the carbon storage capacity of rangeland. And I was floored because growing up, all I ever heard was about how the forest was the big carbon sequester. And so I saw your article go by and you mentioned that carbon storage in grasslands. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I'm fascinated. <laughs> okay, so... About 9,000 years ago, all of this was just slicked off. You know, mm -hmm. it was covered with glaciers that were a kilometer thick, and it just, there was nothing left after that. So over the last 9,000 years, we've gone from no soil to the development of these rich, carbon-rich grassland soil that across the Aspen Parkland, where we are in northern Alberta, the average depth of the A horizon, you know, the black, the rich black soil is a, is 0.9 meters. And so it's just about a, a meter uh, deep. And the amount of carbon that is in that soil is remarkable. 
it, there's a lot of it there. Now, if you till it, if you pile it up and plant canola, you start losing carbon really fast. And across the Great Plains of uh, Northern Great Plains of Canada, uh, ranchers have lost between 40 and 60 percent of the carbon from their from their soil. And it, it goes in erosion. One of the worst things you can do is fall plowing because you've got this black soil that's exposed to the atmosphere. And all that happens is respiration all winter long. And so you're just losing carbon. All, um, all of the microbes are in there chewing away and they're, and, and they're respiring as they're, as they're doing so. Um, so the best thing you can do is have permanent grassland cover and, and have some litter. Uh, to get you through the, through the winter. Uh, because there's an annual cycle of carbon um, in the soil. Um, you see uptake, uh, say May, June, July, August, is pretty much increasing carbon because you're sequestering carbon and, and storing it in the soil through the roots and rhizomes and then the, the microbes in there that are um, benefiting from all of this uh, photosynthesis is going on. And then the rest of the year, we're losing carbon or maintaining it for a while, but then gradually it starts to go down, down, and then we start over again. And and uh, so there, there's an annual cycle in, in carbon. But um, like I said, over the last 9,000 years, we've had a bison grassland co-evolved system that was very effective at sequestering and storing carbon. And the way the bison would, would, uh, range as, as we understand it based upon early records is that you'd have a large herd that would move across the landscape and they'd grace an area really hard and then they'd move on and they'd come back eventually and graze it again. But, you know, these large herds were moving across the landscape, grazing it hard and then leaving it to rest and, and, and tell there was um, regrow, and then it was worth coming back. And, and that's very much like the AMP grazing system. And so what we like to think in the way that we're doing is that we're mimicking the bison grassland system that has been so incredibly effective at sequestering so much carbon across the, the Great Plains of North America. That's really cool. <laughs> So to get back, I guess, to the current day, um, I know a really big consideration for lots of pasture manage managers is the productivity of their stand, because more forage means you get more cow days on pasture, which means you can potentially do more with less acres or you can feed, you can spend less time feeding your cows. So were there any effects that you noticed in this study um, of AMP grazing on overall pasture productivity or forage quality or that sort of stuff? Yes, uh, AMP grazers tended to have higher um, uh, stocking rates um, or not much different, I should say. And, uh, and so their, their yield on, on their branch was improved with AMP grazing. Uh, so it, it's an effective method from the standpoint of beef production. But then there are also these soil health uh, benefits as well as diversity of, of birds and a number of other a number of other benefits. Now, one one thing that we did associated with our study is to work with 
uh, the climate action reserve to develop a grassland protocol, a Canadian grassland protocol for avoided conversion. And if a rancher uh, keeps uh, the land in permanent grassland cover for an extended period of time and then signs an easement that ensures that they will continue to do so, they can get at least one carbon credit per year per per hectare for keeping their land in, in the permanent grassland cover. So this is, again, it's through, you're selling carbon credit is what's going on. And the problem is that this program is based in California. Um, it's cumbersome. And a lot of ranchers have been really discouraged when they weigh into it because the paperwork is onerous. And then the payout is not as good as it should be. You should be getting more if you're, if, if you've got an effective program. Like I said, on our, on our wild rose ranch, we, we were sequestering on average 2.5 metric tons of CO2 equivalent per hectare per year. So we should have been getting a couple of credits and credits. Uh, today, I think they're selling for $40 per credit. So that's one metric ton of CO2 equivalent. Um, but uh, Trudeau has promised that that will go up uh, uh, on a regular basis until we get to about $140 per credit. So what that means is that um, uh, without any uh, tillage without any uh, um, management other than raising cattle, we can collect. Well, we, should, we will be able to collect $140 per hectare per year um, in perpetuity every year, and so that that's an incentive to prevent going to canola. Unfortunately, the incentive for going to cropland is high right now because of uh, negotiations with China and, and high demand for canola. And, and so right, right now, crop prices are very high. Fuel prices are high as well, but nevertheless, people can really make a lot of money uh, converting to cropland. Like I said, that's the worst thing that can happen. From the standpoint of carbon balance. Oh, but a point that I was just about to make is that Canada needs to have its own carbon registry to make it easier for ranchers to, to get into this program, to um, reduce some of the paperwork, and to reward ranchers for doing it right. And and uh, Canada doesn't have anything of the sort, and we and we have to go through some sort of a broker typically to line up with the climate action service reduces the revenues that you're actually getting for buying into the program. And I just, um, like I said, Canada needs to, to get its act together and deal with this very important uh, carbon balance uh, program. Justin Trudeau's carbon tax revenues are being squandered when we could be using those to really benefit that, that carbon balance. Yeah, and, and doing it using biological 
methods as opposed to these extremely expensive uh, carbon capture and sequestration programs where they put gas on stacks and, and get CO2 out of emissions from industrial uh, operations such as oil refining. Uh, those are just so inefficient, so ineffective, and, and good livestock management can be much more efficient and much more effective on a large scale. Yeah, makes sense. Use what's already there instead of trying to invent a new <laughs> new solution. Um, another benefit of the whole rotational grazing thing that you've talked about a little bit already is the uh, increased rest periods, which allows for some more biodiversity with um, animals, especially birds, um, as well as plant populations and and balancing the increases and decreases in water quality and all of that sort of stuff. So can you talk a little bit more about those other ecological effects of the AMP grazing aside from just carbon capture? The water balance is a really important one. The vegetation effect is, mm. is complicated. And uh, one of the problems with our study area, and it's too wet and across the big thing, is that so many ranchers have have uh, tampered with, with their vegetation by by seeding cane forage. And sometimes, it, you know, it happened 40 years ago, but it's still left with this, all this, this uh, cane forage that's not nearly as effective as sequestering and storing carbon is as are the native grasslands. So we're talking about uh, timothy and bluegrass and uh, brome grass and wheat grass and other things that people will plant, um, thinking that they're improving their, their pasture. So they are in some ways, but um, in, the, in the big picture of things, the native grasslands are, are much better uh, for a variety of reasons. But the plant diversity is not that much altered by the AMP grazing. It's sort of a mixed bag, and uh, and we can't really count um, strong benefits associated with um, with AMP grazing as it relates to the vegetation composition and structure. Now that said, you mentioned and and as I pointed out. We avoid the increasers and decreasers and and shifts in the composition of the pasture toward uh, less palatable plants. That doesn't happen under AMP grazing. So that's a that's a that's a real benefit. Um, but uh, what would be nice is a follow up study to really dig into the details of how people have messed with in uh, pasture and what kind of uh, manipulations or, or not are are most effective. We're perhaps most excited about pure native grassland, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's always the best as it relates to beef production. So um, I don't think that we have a complete story to tell about the um, forage composition that is optimum for production. We know that the AMP grazing system is effective. 
but uh, are there other things that, that ranchers ought to be doing to maximize um, production? We'll keep an eye out for that follow-up study. So out of all of the things that you've learned and you saw throughout the course of this study, what do you think is the most interesting result to come out of this trial? I think the water infiltration was a really important result. And, you know, grasslands, especially in southern Alberta and southern Saskatchewan, are on the edge, you know, because um, you, it's common if you have low precipitation years. And uh, why it, it used to be pretty common that people would leave cropland fallow for a year just to build up the soil moisture. Um, AMP grazing is very effective at improving the infiltration into the soil and buffering uh, against drought. And with climate change, you know, that may become more and more important. So not only the litter, but also the infiltration are enhanced. Yeah. I'm based out of Fairview, so we're up in the heavy clay sort of territory, and we see that with, with some bale grazing practices especially, just increasing the organic matter and instead of just closing up those heavy clay soils, kind of hold on to some of that moisture a little better. Um, I know you sent me the an Alice brochure for best practices on AMP grazing. Just very quickly, are there any other resources or places people can go for more info? Well, the, the publication, we have a couple of other key papers that are yet to come out. Uh, we had one on soil microbes that just, just came out. And uh, the soil carbon paper is that uh, trying to small arm a graduate student into getting that thing finalized because it's such an important piece of the puzzle. But the upshot is that um, the A horizon is, is deeper. Uh, you know, under AMP, right? and so the carbon is the question deeper into the soil. Uh, the worst thing you can have is Kentucky bluegrass. You, you you cut it and you roll it up and you sell it to urbanites so that they can roll it out onto their onto their uh, lawn. Well, I mean, if, just look at how deep the soil, the root system is under Kentucky bluegrass, uh, as opposed to some other plants like Timothy is really good. Timothy has pretty deep uh, roots that, that really sink that, that carbon deeper. Many native plants are really good at sequestering the carbon deep into the soil. All right, awesome. Uh, if you're interested in any of the stuff that Mark and I talked about today, um, there are some links and resources down in the description of the podcast. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for uh, doing this interview, and I'll let you get on to your next meeting. My pleasure. Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening.